Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Willy, Willy, Harry, Stee, Harry, Dick, John, Harry, three, one, two, three, Ned's, Richard, two, Henry's, four, five, six, then who? Edward's, four, five, Dick, the bad, Harry's, twain, and Ned, the lad, Mary, Bessie, James, the vain, Charlie, Charlie. Yes, we come to our second Charlie, by the skin of our teeth. The rhyme could have stopped at the first Charlie. The rhythm would have all been wrong, but then maybe by the 1960s, our monarchs would have all been long forgotten, a weird anomaly of the past. Because Oliver Cromwell nearly shut the whole thing down, the period known as the interregnum, which simply means between regents, between monarchs. And that wouldn't have been an interregnum, it would have been um, whatever the Latin is for the end of the monarchy. But essentially... Where Oliver Cromwell went wrong, it seems to me, is that he never really worked out a viable alternative to the monarchy. It seemed to be entrenched in people's minds that we needed some kind of powerful man, I mean, or woman, but yeah, preferably a man, at the helm. And Parliament toyed with the idea of making him a king. He, he turned it down. He didn't want to upset the army, mainly. But, yeah, he tried various different styles of Parliament. He tried this very reduced Parliament, known as the Rump Parliament, which consisted entirely of his own supporters. But even they wouldn't do exactly what he wanted them to do. You see, he came up against this problem that all the monarchs have. He said, yes, it's marvellous we should have a parliament and you people should have a say in the running of things, but it would be much easier if you just did what I told you to do. But they never did, and this pissed off the monarchs. We saw how Charles I basically shut parliament down for years and years, which eventually led to the English Civil War. Oliver Cromwell 
faced with these problems. So as I say, he tries this rump parliament of his own supporters. That doesn't work very well. He tries a sort of government of religious leaders. And thank God that didn't stick. He then tried basically military dictatorship, ruling through the power of the army and these local major generals who he installed around the country. That wasn't popular either. Surprise, surprise. He tried everything when, in fact, what he really wanted it was the same as Charles. He wanted people to just listen to what he was saying and act on it. And, you know, this idea of let's get rid of this bloodline succession went right out the window when Oliver Cromwell was dying relatively young in his 50s. He basically appointed his son as his successor. His son was pretty useless and not that interested in trying to run the country. He knew that it was actually a very dangerous position. So he went out the window Things fell apart and one of Cromwell's generals, George Knox, who was um, governor of Scotland, he was in charge of the army up in Scotland. He basically thought the best thing to do was to come down to London and sort things out. So he marches south with his army and he comes into Parliament and says, let's sort this out. And if you don't, I'll set the army on you. And we have various factions in Parliament, but the one that becomes strongest and most dominant is the royalist section saying that the easiest thing to do would be just to get Charles on the throne, officially make him Charles II, and so they invited Charles back from Europe. And in all of the official records, there's no mention of Oliver Cromwell. There's an unbroken line from Charles I's execution. And as I say, all the official records say that's when King Charles II came to the throne. And so we're right back where we started. All of that turmoil, war, bloodshed, the beheading of King Charles I was for nothing, as if it had never happened. And indeed, Charles II inherits all the problems his father had, all the problems Oliver Cromwell had. A broken system and an unruly and disruptive government. And in the end, Charles did exactly what his father had done and what Oliver Cromwell occasionally did. Towards the end of his rule, Charles shut Parliament down again. What we've seen through this series is that the main role of Parliament has been to raise taxes for the monarch, which involves much debate. Parliament also acts as a counterbalance to the ultimate power of the monarch. It's their job to stop the monarch from doing whatever they want, taking people's lands, money, arresting people they don't like without trial, etc. Another task was... When there was confusion, Parliament had to get involved in deciding how the line of succession was going to be organised. After Henry VIII, Parliament had the additional task of determining how God was going to be worshipped. Parliament, and in particular Cromwell's Puritan Parliament, took a much harder line and were a lot more intolerant than the Stuart monarchs tended to be. They preferred a hands-off approach, to let people come to their God however they wanted, but they were constantly having to keep the more hard-line elements in Parliament happy. Our Charles II had a very eventful reign. We have the restoration of the monarchy, we have the opening up and liberalisation of society, and the arts and religion. And I mean, I looked at all this with Ian Mortimer in the last episode, this idea that English people had been held down under the boot of the Puritans. And once the boot was lifted, the country sort of sprang into life. There was an explosion of science and art and music and theatre, literature, singing and dancing and fornicating. 
This can perhaps best be exemplified by the idea of restoration comedy, these scurrilous, bawdy, satirical, anti-authoritarian comedies that poked fun at aristocrats, even at the king himself. Now, as someone whose career has been largely making comedy, I suppose at some point I should probably do a whole episode on restoration comedy, so look out for that. But alongside this positive energy, we have the downside, the problems of economic depression, the Great Plague, the Great Fire of London, war with the Dutch, the expansion of the British Empire. And finally, the big battle that Charles was fighting at home was with his own parliament, largely about religious tolerance. Now, Charles didn't manage to produce any legitimate heirs and insisted that his younger brother James should succeed him. But unfortunately, James came out as a Catholic. So the final years of Charles's reign would be swallowed up by these disputes with Parliament and the people, it has to be said, which led to Charles doing, as I mentioned earlier, what his father and Cromwell had done. He shut Parliament down again. But let's start at the beginning. Uh, Charles was born in 1630. He died in 1685. He, like Cromwell, was in his 50s. He was 54 when he died. There's not a lot to say about his childhood. Obviously, things became dominated by what was going on with his father, Charles I, and his relationships with Parliament. And obviously, the Civil War started while Charles II was quite young still. He had a fairly standard royal upbringing. In fact, his early tutor said he shouldn't be over-educated. It wouldn't be good for him. <laughs> King doesn't need to be that bright. Until when he was a little bit older, his father's physician, William Harvey, became involved in Charles's upbringing. And William Harvey was a very eminent doctor and scientist. He is the man who really properly studied the circulation of blood and how the human body works and what the heart does. And that's what he's best known for, for describing the circulation of blood. This was really a time when science was coming into its own, a kind of rational approach to how the world worked and how the human body worked. And there were so many scientific advances in Charles's time he was actually fascinated with all this. He became the patron of and one of the funders of the formation of the Royal Society, this historic institute. He never actually went to any meetings. He liked the idea of science and all these discoveries being made. But actually, he was probably more interested in the tech than in the actual theories behind it. He was fascinated by, by military tech, particularly naval advances, the artillery and the design of the ships. He became obsessed with clocks and watches. He had his own pocket watch. In fact, he had his bedroom stuffed with clocks. He liked them so much, which must have been a bit of a nightmare, really. Ticking and tocking and clanging and bonging all night long. And he also loved telescopes. And he had his own one made. I think it was about 30 foot long. And he had a certain sort of schoolboy enthusiasm for this. He liked nothing better than inviting his posh mates around and showing them uh, sights through this telescope, including the rings of Saturn. And I'm with him on that. A couple of times I've been shown through the sort of telescope you can set up in your own garden. I've been shown Saturn. There it is looking exactly like it does in the picture books, rings and all. 
It's quite extraordinary seeing something so far away and seeing it in such detail. So anyway, Charles was into the tech that was coming out of science, but he got lost when it came to the theory. Physics was getting into what seemed to him an abstract area. He could see no practical application for it. But scientists were properly, for the first time, beginning to understand how the universe works and how the human body works. There were biologists, like Harvey, studying the circulation of blood, chemists like Robert Boyle, who was studying the nature of air, Robert Hooke, who built his own microscope and discovered microorganisms, and, of course, architects like Sir Christopher Wren. This really is a time of intellectual exploration. And, you know, you could say that part of this is because we have released the grip of the old school Catholic Church, who were even resistant to the idea that uh, the earth was not the centre of the universe. Now, the other day I visited Westminster Abbey for the first time since I was, I don't know, probably about 12, 13 years old. And I really thought, as it's so central to our royal history, that I ought to take another look. And it is an extraordinary place. I mean, the building is amazing. Uh, originally started by Edward the Confessor before this series even began. It is an amazing repository of history, and particularly royal history. There are 30 monarchs buried there, including Charles II. It is the graveyard of kings. And upstairs in a special gallery, there's a wonderful wax effigy of Charles, dressed in all his finery. There had been this tradition of carrying effigies of monarchs at their funeral processions. Now, that custom had fallen out of fashion by the time of Charles's death. But this effigy was made to stand by his tomb as a monument to him. And he's dressed in his own clothes, this fabulous restoration outfit. He's apparently even wearing silk underwear. It's like an early version of Madame Tussauds. He looks a bit like a sort of comedy Italian-American gangster of the 1930s. Slightly pugnacious. He's got quite a Mediterranean look to him. A slightly darker complexion, very black hair. And he has this wonderful sort of pencil moustache. Uh, a proper gangster's moustache. But I did get this wonderful feeling of, of coming face to face with the man I was about to do a podcast about. He was actually very tall for the time. He was just a little bit over six foot. Considered very good looking. And, you know, as a person, he was very popular. He was very, very affable. He liked partying and dining and drinking and going to the theatre. Um, he, he enjoyed the, the sort of performative arts more than the static ones. His father, Charles I, had been this great collector of paintings. Uh, Charles II, less so. But his court does seem to have been a genuinely nice place to be, to hang out. He had lived a much more varied and interesting life than most monarchs, which we'll come on to in a minute. I promise it will come on to in a minute. But there was one criticism of him was that he was lazy. Well, he had a dislike of hard work, which, you know, I can relate to. And he had no real attention to detail. He didn't properly get stuck in to the politics of the day. And he was trying all through his reign to not be like Cromwell, to not be this religious fanatic. He was trying not to have rules imposed about what people 
believed in. And he sort of seemed to try and avoid conflict. In the 18th century, a historian called Burnett said of him that he was, during the active part of his life, given up to sloth and lewdness to such a degree that he hated business and could not bear the engaging in anything that gave him much trouble or put him under any constraint. I can sort of um, identify with that. But also in that quote, it touched on the idea of lewdness. He was, shall we say, very much a ladies' man. So he and his younger brother James, as he was growing up, managed to stay largely with his father. Even as the Civil War broke out, they were alongside him. And when he was a very young teenager, he was nominally given charge of the Royalist Army in the West. I don't think he really actually did anything very much. As the Civil War got a lot more serious, King Charles I tried to get Prince Charles to flee the country to safety in France. But the boy wanted to stay and fight. However, his army was driven further and further west, right down into Cornwall, at which point the prince thought, sod this for a game of soldiers, I'm getting out of here. And he fled by sea, first to the Scilly Isles, and then on to Jersey, and then on to Paris, to meet up with his mother and younger brother James. Now, the Scots have been playing their part in the civil wars, originally supporting Cromwell against King Charles I, who they didn't like. They felt he had been trying to impose English religious ways on them. They wanted a more extreme form of Scottish Protestantism. So they supported Cromwell as an anti-monarchist. But now they're thinking that they might have the opportunity for advancement if they switch sides. And they start negotiating with Prince Charles to come over and lead a Scottish army to attack England. But in order for that to happen, Charles would have to agree to the Scottish way of doing religion, which was much more extreme Protestant and anti-Catholic than Charles himself was. Now, his mother is French and is a French Catholic. He's with her in Paris under the patronage of the French king. And he repeatedly refuses Scottish demands. The Scots run out of patience, send an army down into England, but Cromwell smashes them to pieces at the Battle of Preston, which leads to a kind of civil war in Scotland with the various competing factions blaming each other for this disaster. And eventually the pro-Cromwellian faction, known as the Kirk, become the most dominant party there. At the end of this first civil war, King Charles knows that his number's up and he surrenders to the Scots, thinking that they will look after him and that he might be able to do his own deal with them. But they essentially sell him to Oliver Cromwell. Now, I'm going to condense what happens here because we've dealt with it in previous episodes and we know what the final outcome is. King Charles tries negotiating with Cromwell. That doesn't go well for him. He's recaptured and eventually Cromwell's had enough and beheads him, which came as a bit of a shock to the Scots. They never thought that Cromwell and Parliament would go that far. This was quite unprecedented through Europe and nobody quite knew how to react. The Scots' initial reaction was to declare that King Charles I's son, Charles, was now monarch. So he, he's now King of Scotland, but of course he's not recognised as King of England. And once again, they go through this process of trying to get 
Charles back over from the continent, but only if he will agree to their demands, which he won't. And Charles pulls together what support he can get in Europe, and he arranges for this guy Montrose to invade Scotland, to actually, you know, to try and take a small army in there and get rid of this more extremist party that want Charles to agree to these very heavy religious terms. Charles actually then gets cold feet about this, tries to call off the invasion, but it goes ahead anyway from the Orkneys, and it's a miserable disaster, and Montrose is captured and executed. At which point Charles had to accept the authority of the Scottish Kirk and government, no doubt planning to go back on his word when it suited him. So young Charles sets off from the continent heading for Scotland. But the Scots are impatient and jump the gun. They declare war on Cromwell, who promptly takes an army up to Scotland and once again gives them a good spanking. Cromwell's much better organised, trained, equipped army, the new model army, defeat the Scots again at Dunbar, weakening the Kirk party and weakening Prince Charles's cause. But after initial success, Cromwell, like so many English military commanders before him, got bogged down in Scotland and the Scotch launched a counterattack against the English led by the newly arrived Prince Charles. So they tried to get in kind of underneath Cromwell, leave him stranded in Scotland whilst they surge into England. And they got as far as Worcester, unopposed, uh, where they were hoping to gain popular support and spark an uprising. But at this point, the English are not really behind Charles. They don't like the Scots, and they also think Charles is probably a supporter of the French and a secret Catholic. And Cromwell's army comes charging down from the north behind them. And the Battle of Worcester in 1651 is the last major battle of the English Civil Wars. Surprise, surprise, Charles's army is defeated and Cromwell's new model army is once again triumphant. But Charles managed to get away and his escape became part of colourful schoolboy history. It includes famously hiding in the oak tree, uh, which became called the Royal Oak, which is why we have so many pubs called the Royal Oak. Because this oak tree, the symbol of England, the great British oak, is a thing that saved our monarchy. And in later life, Charles was famous for boring people to tears by telling them about his exploits when he went on the run. He disguised himself as a peasant and various other things, which was quite difficult because he was over six foot tall and uh, had a lot of royal airs about him. And I'll go into this in more detail with my special guest on this episode. Um, we have the return of the great Charles Spencer, um, who has written a book about Charles's escape from England. He was on the run for six weeks. He managed to make his way south to Somerset, then moved east to Dorset and along the coast to Shoreham in Kent, where he got away to Normandy. And it looked to all concerned as if that was it, the end of the royal cause. And Charles, who's in his 20s at this point, does what a lot of modern young men do. He moved in with his mother, although she was living in the Louvre, which at that time was still a French royal palace. Uh, but they didn't really live the high life there. They had no money 
and Charles had no real purpose, nothing to do. He had to rely on his mother's pension from the French government and occasional small donations from supporters in England. And inevitably, his rather pathetic court fell into infighting and backbiting like rats in a sack. So it was a pretty miserable time for him in many ways. But he did his best to keep his end up. He started having affairs with various women in the community of English expats. And he had his first child born. A son called James was born in 1649 with a woman called Lucy Walter. And he didn't stop there. He had a daughter with Elizabeth Boyle and he had another son and another daughter with Charlotte Pegg. Um, one of the women he had affairs with was Lady Byron, one of Lord Byron's ancestors. So um, he was a bit of a Jack the Lad, shall we say, in Paris. And according to the great diarist Samuel Pepys, Lady Byron was Charles's 17th mistress. Now, whilst he was in Paris, Charles did pick up on a lot of the French royal court style. And he did make connections with King Louis. But the lack of money was a big problem. And when the Germans offered him more money and patronage, he moved to Cologne for 18 months. Uh, but it turned out that the money wasn't as much as he was hoping for. Back on the other side of the channel, there were a few small uprisings in Scotland and England, uh, but Cromwell dealt with them pretty swiftly. Charles tried to get the Pope on side without any luck. So then he tried Spain, which upset the French. Although there was, a, there was a feeling in the European courts that they did need to support Charles because he was one of them. He was a king. If Cromwell and the parliamentarians are successful in England in forming a strong government and not allowing Charles back on the throne, that could set a precedent. Pissed off and restless types through Europe might start to say, we should do what the English have done. We should get rid of our own kings. So they humoured Charles. Now Cromwell, perhaps rather foolishly, starts various military campaigns in Europe. Now the situation in Europe is complicated and I'm not really going to try and go into it in any depth here. But as ever, we have all these competing powers who are always making alliances with each other and signing treaties. And then like two weeks later, they make a treaty with someone else and declare war on the country they first signed a treaty with. It's pretty bewildering and hard to keep up with. And I've made the analogy before, but it is very similar to the game of risk. And indeed, many board games where you make an alliance with someone purely for temporary short-term gain. And as soon as you've got that, you break the alliance. So we have the Dutch, who are an increasingly powerful naval force and are growing very dominant in the North Sea and the English Channel, as well as creating and expanding a worldwide empire. We have the French under the absolute monarch Louis XIV, and they're a pretty solid presence at the heart of it all. And we have the Spanish, who were also in control of the territory between France and the Dutch in Flanders, which is where the port of Dunkirk is. Now, Dunkirk has changed hands many times over the years and is used by whoever is in control of it as a base for privateers to attack and rob merchant shipping. Now, Charles, who originally asked the French to look after him, has fallen out with the French temporarily and he's made an alliance with the Spanish. And Cromwell now has an alliance with the French and he sends troops over the channel to take Dunkirk. 
at which point a combined Spanish and Royalist army attack him. And at this point, Charles's younger brother, James, is a general in the Spanish army. But sadly for Charles and James, the English and the French are victorious and Cromwell takes over Dunkirk, giving him a toehold on the opposite side of the channel to England, as it were. And Charles's attempts at putting together this sort of ragtag European army have come to nothing. This looks like the end of any idea Charles might have to take an army over to England and reclaim his throne. But a few months after Cromwell takes Dunkirk, he dies and his son Richard takes power. Now, he was no Oliver. And for the first time, parliamentary forces were looking wobbly. This sort of um, tricky coalition in England between the moderate Protestants, the hardline Puritans and the army, this new force that had been unleashed, the new model army, starts to fall apart. And this guy, George Knox, brings his army down from Scotland. Actually, there's a funeral effigy in a suit of armour representing George Knox in the gallery at Westminster Abbey, very close to King Charles II. You get the impression he wasn't someone you'd want to get into an argument with. Anyway, we're back to square one. And on the 23rd of May 1660, Charles sails from Holland in a small flotilla. Charles's ship, the flagship, was later renamed the Royal Charles in honour of the event. The actual Royal Charles himself stands proudly on the poop deck, accompanied by his supporters, including his younger brother James and Samuel Pepys, the great diarist who kept this incredible record of life at court and at home in Restoration England. And it's an incredibly valuable resource. He was very closely involved with Charles's court. He was a politician for a while. He was chief secretary to the Admiralty for a while. He had a large group of influential friends. He went to the theatre. He engaged in everything that London had to offer. And he famously had a very active sex life. He had many affairs. He was fond of visiting prostitutes. So, you know, his diaries have something for everyone. So when Charles gets to London and is crowned, um, he knows that he doesn't have overwhelming support. He knows he's going to have to tread very carefully. And his plan really is to try not to do anything to upset anyone. And this has been framed, as we looked at earlier, as being perhaps lazy or avoiding hard work or avoiding anything controversial. But it is a valid approach for trying to hold things together. He certainly didn't want to be hard line on anything. First of all, he says, I'm not going to try and arrest and put on trial everybody involved in running the country during the interregnum, the supporters of Cromwell, the parliamentarians, whatever. He says the only people he's going after are the regicides, the people that ordered the execution of his father and carried it out. And he was probably extremely pissed off with his people. They'd cut his father's head off. So he went in hard against the regicides. But he did try and confine it to that relatively small group who had been instrumental in killing his father. On the whole, he said, look, let's just get on with it. People don't want all this strife. And he invited many of these parliamentarians back into government. 
The other problem he's having to deal with is this uh, sort of anti-Catholic mood. And he doesn't want to try and prescribe how people are going to worship, but he knows he's got pressure from the Protestants and the Puritans to really crack down on the Catholics, to keep them out of power. One of the things that Charles knew would help secure his position on the throne was to work a bit on national security. He worked with various people to try and set out a way of keeping a permanent military. Obviously, the Navy was very important. We still have these ongoing problems with the Dutch and these sort of rival naval empires of England and Holland. So he manages to create a reasonably stable court. Now, he spent a lot of time in France and he has observed the French court and he has been impressed by the French court. He likes the way that Louis XIV is this all-powerful ruler, but he also has been seduced by the styles, the fashions, things like the advances in science. And he's bringing a lot of these French fashions and styles and thoughts to England, which is fine on one level, but people are starting to think, you know, is he a bit too much of a Francophile? Um, is he perhaps leaning towards Catholicism? We can't let that happen. So he needs to do whatever he can to try and secure his position. And one way to do this is to get married to the right European princess. So he looks around Europe for the best country to make a marriage alliance with, and he settles on Portugal. Now, Portugal had been part of the Spanish Habsburg Empire for 60 years, but the Portuguese had managed to throw off Spanish rule and a guy called King John IV was in power. An alliance with the Portuguese would be a good buffer against the Spanish, and Charles managed to marry John's daughter Catherine, Catherine of Braganza. He figures that this will give him some power in Europe. He'll become more of a player. It will also give him a substantial dowry, which is important as he's always trying to refill the royal coffers. And what's interesting is this is a big step forward in the establishment and growth of the international British Empire. She brings the port of Tangier in North Africa. She brings various trading privileges in Brazil and the East Indies. And she also brings the seven islands of Bombay in India, which is the area around what is now uh, Mumbai. And there is this group of islands out in the Indian Ocean there. Now, as it turns out, it's very expensive trying to run all these places. And Charles is always trying to claw back as much money as he can to run his lavish court. And one of the things he does is he sells the seven islands of Bombay to this new company, the British East India Company. The East India Company is a trading company, a corporation founded in 1600, aiming to exploit the vast wealth and enormous natural resources of the subcontinent. And as it grew richer and more powerful, it started to take control of the area. The East India Company became the largest corporation in the world, and they had their own private army, which was one of the biggest armies in the world, over a quarter of a million soldiers, twice the size of the British army at the time. And eventually, and we will come to this in later episodes, they end up running India. And this is the start of the Raj. It was originally all run by the British East India Company. 
And it was only later on that that officially became part of the British Empire. And as I say, we'll deal with that later. But the British East India Company taking these islands around Bombay is enormously important. They bought them for about £10 or something ridiculous. It was a token thing because Charles wanted to get this financial burden off his back and give it to someone else. But it was an extremely valuable toehold for the company. But Charles also sold off and gave up pretty much everything else that Catherine of Braganza had given to him in her dowry. Tangier was eventually abandoned. And this large area in northeast America, around Hudson Bay, was entirely sold off to a similar company to the British East India Company, the Hudson's Bay Company. So again, this part of the empire is effectively being run by a private corporation. So we can see British expansionism at work here. And inevitably, British interests again rub up against Dutch interests, not only in Europe, but in the Americas. They try to sort it out diplomatically. It comes to nothing. It ends up with another war. It starts off well for the English. Charles's younger brother, James, the Duke of York, is in charge of the navy. And he has a pretty spectacular victory at the Battle of Lowestoft in the North Sea off the east coast of England. Now, it's, all, it's all actually quite complicated with the Dutch because Charles's sister Mary is married to one of the local rulers, Prince William of Orange. I suppose maybe they had a conversation where Charles said, look, it's nothing personal. Uh, but then the Dutch Navy decide to attack closer to home and they bring a fleet into the Thames and up to where the Thames is joined by the Medway. And there is this incident known as the Raid on Medway. And perhaps calling it a raid is trying to sort of downplay it. Oh, don't worry about it. It wasn't that important. But actually, this is one of the most major naval defeats that the British have ever suffered. The Dutch destroyed all of the English fleet that was harboured there, apart from the flagship, the Royal Charles, which symbolically they captured and took back to the Netherlands as a prize. And this was a massive blow to Charles and to the English but it was round about then that Charles thought, this is ridiculous. This is costing me a huge amount of money. It is bankrupting the nation. Let's put an end to it. And he signed uh, a treaty of Breda uh, with the Dutch. Now, it's quite confusing because there were two treaties of Breda signed, one with the Scottish earlier on and this one with the Dutch. So it might be easy for you just to forget that altogether uh, as I no doubt will having finished this episode. But... Um, Basically, the war with the Dutch ended, but not before causing this huge economic depression in Britain, which wasn't helped by an outbreak of the plague in 1655. And London particularly is, is ravaged by the plague. Thousands of people dying. The rich are able to escape. They go to their country estates. Charles takes the court out of London. The plague only really lasts for about a year. There's been this history of these flare-ups where it comes in quickly, is very devastating, but actually burns out quite quickly too. But to compound Charles's woes, the next year in 1666, well, it's one of those dates like 1066 that the English tend to know, it's the Great Fire of London. This fire starts in a bakery in Pudding Lane, quickly spreads until a huge part of London is engulfed. Now, London at the time is still largely made up of Elizabethan timber-framed houses, 
going back to Tudor times and before, right back into the Middle Ages, and um, and the whole place is a fire trap. London goes up in flames. St Paul's Cathedral goes up in flames. The original cathedral is burnt down. It is an opportunity for Charles and James to kind of muck in and show that they're heroes. It seems to be a, a, a thing in times of war that the royal family need to be shown to be doing something. And famously, the royal princesses, Elizabeth and Margaret, during the Second World War, went out around London and made themselves very visible. And Charles and James did the same, leading the firefighting activities and actually, you know, physically getting stuck in. But they weren't able to stop half of London being burnt down. It was going to happen sooner or later. These houses were old badly built, falling apart. It was useful in some ways to, to clear it all out and make space for a new London. There is a monument to the fire called The Monument. Uh, most people only really know it now because it's the name of the nearby tube station. It's slightly off the beaten track, hidden away in the back streets. It's worth a look. It's a pillar with this big golden ball of fire on the top. And when it's open, you can go up inside and there's a, there's quite a good view of that part of London. It's very near the Thames um, in the old city of London. Now, as I said, the fire started in a bakery. London was a tinderbox waiting to catch fire. But very quickly, a conspiracy theory started doing the rounds that it had been started by the Catholics. You can imagine the sort of restoration version of of Neil Oliver, the sort of Scottish conspiracy theorist. Oh, yes, it's the Catholics. The Catholics are behind the whole thing. And before you know it, they'll bring in turbo cancer and wipe the rest of us out. Like all conspiracy theorists, it was not based on any truth. Catholics hadn't started it at all. But this is the sort of feverish atmosphere in the country. This unease, this distrust of Catholics. And so Charles is trying to deal with all this. He doesn't approve of this anti-Catholic sentiment. But there's this very powerful sort of inner court in Parliament of these five privy councillors, Clifford, Arlington, Buckingham, Ashley and Lauderdale. And their initials conveniently spell out the word cabal. And this cabal is pretty much running the country and they try and force through these anti-Catholic laws. The nominal guy in charge of Parliament, Charles's kind of right-hand man, is a guy called Clarendon. And this law comes in called Clarendon's Law, although Clarendon himself was against most of it. It ended up being called after him because he was the senior figure involved. And this is really clamping down on Catholics, on what they are and aren't allowed to do, um, what their preachers are and aren't allowed to do. They're being excluded from a lot of areas. It's not just Catholics. It's any kind of extremist or independent religious movement is being blocked and quashed. And there are restrictions on Catholics and other of the sort of uh, the breakaway religious groups in Parliament itself. Charles is against all this, but he knows he can't argue. He's got to keep Parliament on side. And there's this other figure who doesn't help, this guy called Titus Oates, who seems to have been a pretty odious man. He was a complete liar and con man, which is which is rare in politics, I suppose. Actually, no, I mean, he wasn't a, he wasn't a politician, but he, he, he had huge influence. He claimed to have been an ordained priest, which he wasn't. 
He claimed to have got this great degree from university, which he hadn't. And he starts to stir up anti-Catholic sentiment. He says there is this huge popish plot to assassinate the king. And he starts naming names. And even though Charles and most people at Parliament think, you know what, I think this is probably bollocks. They have to go through the motions of investigating it all. And it causes huge disruption. Oates eventually is discredited and arrested, but not before doing huge damage. There were loads of arrests and many completely innocent people, men and women, were executed. But Titus Oates was very good at stirring things up. He was a disruptor. He was good at whipping the ordinary people of England up into a fury and getting them on his side. He's one of these sort of populist types, a sort of Nigel Farage type. And for Catholics, read the European Union. It's these nasty foreigners, these outsiders who are trying to undermine the good, stout Englishmen. And the people of England kind of go along with this. It's always nice to have a sort of common enemy, someone we can sneer at and be against. As long as you can build a nice straw man as a target of people's discontent, you can distract them from the real problems that are going on in society and the real economic problems. But Charles has a problem pretty close to home and it's one of those problems that has dogged the monarchy. He hasn't had any children with his actual wife. He's had hundreds with his mistresses, but he hasn't created a legitimate heir to the throne. We saw when he was a young man over in France, he had his first son was illegitimate. He's had many mistresses back in England. One of the things that the Restoration did was to insist that theatrical companies hired female actresses to play female parts, which you can see on one level as sort of equality, emancipation of women. But it was also because Charles liked to go to the theatre and see pretty young women and um, have sex with them. One of his most famous mistresses was Nell Gwynne, who started, I think she started as an orange seller and became an actress and became a royal mistress. And she's generally considered to be Charles's favourite. There's quite a funny incident with one of these sort of anti-Catholic riots in London where a carriage was surrounded by angry Protestants. And the big thing in, in a sort of anti-Catholic thing is the idea of the, the whore of Babylon. Um, which is basically a nickname for the Pope. And they're jostling Nell's carriage, accusing her of being Catholic. And she sticks her head out the window and she says, no, no, I am the Protestant whore. Um, so she seems quite a fun figure. But because Charles doesn't have any legitimate children, the succession will go to his younger brother, James, who by now has declared himself outright as a Catholic. And this causes huge ructions. And Parliament splits into two factions. On one side, we have this sort of conservative, old school, high church, Anglican side, who also have a slight Catholic bent, a lot of the very wealthy noblemen. And then on the other side, you have the more liberal, thrusting, modern, uh, heavily Protestant side. And the conservative side become derisively nicknamed as the Tories, which comes from an Irish word 
something like Torai, um, which is a sort of nickname for an outlaw or a robber or a, a brigand. And then the other party, because this is in many ways the birth of a two-party system in Parliament, the Conservatives and the Liberals, the Tories and the Whigs, and they become more and more sort of solidified as actual parties over the years. And it's not until the 20th century that we get a third party, the Labour Party. And what's interesting is they become much more dominant as the 20th century goes on and the Liberals sort of dwindle and fade away so that we end up back with pretty much a two-party system, which I've always thought is one of the big problems we have. We'd be much better off with a three-party system, Conservatives on the right, Liberals as centrists and Labour on the left, but um, it seems that's not going to happen. But the birth of the Tory party was back in Charles's reign. As I say, it was an insult. The word Whig was also an insult um, based on these Scottish sort of cattle drovers who were called Whigamores. I'm not quite sure why those nicknames were considered appropriate, but over the years, the two parties kind of owned the nicknames. So there are these various small plots against Charles. At one point, his illegitimate son, this is James Scott, the first Duke of Monmouth, the first Duke of Bewley. And what was interesting, we looked at this with Ian Mortimer in the episode on the Restoration, is that Charles was quite open about his illegitimate children. It wasn't shameful at all, and he ennobled many of them. James, Duke of Monmouth, had a very interesting and colourful life. He, at one point, was involved in a small plot to overthrow his own father, and this became known as the Rye House Plot. I said at the beginning of this episode that Charles wasn't particularly into the more refined, highfalutin arts. He liked more robust entertainments. I think it says a lot about him and his reign that he was a big fan of horse racing and meetings at Newmarket became a big thing. Twice a year, the whole court would decamp there for the races and they'd stay there for a few days. And in 1683, Charles was at Newmarket with his brother James and they were due to return to Westminster on the 1st of April and they were planning to have an overnight stop at a country house in Hertfordshire called Rye House on the way back a group of conspirators put together a plot to assassinate Charles and James at the house. But a big fire broke out in Newmarket, burnt down half the town, and the races were cancelled. So Charles and James set off back to London early, completely missing their appointment with death. But the plot did come to light, and the plotters were um, arrested and executed. So Charles was having to deal with this kind of thing all through his life, and it, it probably would have gone on for years and years and years. But in 1685, he suddenly fell ill, and pretty seriously ill. Um, there were rumours that he might have been poisoned, inevitably. Oh, it's the Catholics again. They've infected him with turbo cancer. Or perhaps Brother James himself had been behind it to try and get more quickly to the throne. But actually, he was just ill. They reckon it was some kind of kidney problem that he had. Now, I mentioned before that Charles was into science. And one of the things he was fascinated by as so many people were at the time, was alchemy. Uh, 
Before people understood about the elements, they believed that it was possible to create gold. They believed that it was possible to create gold out of less valuable metals. And alchemists were always experimenting, often with lead and mercury. And Charles had his own scientific laboratory at the palace and he would spend hours in there trying to distill mercury as part of the alchemical process. And mercury fumes are extremely poisonous. So there are theories that he perhaps suffered from mercury poisoning. So leaving alchemy aside, there were all these advances in science and in surgery and the understanding of the human body. But the actual practice of medicine, the work of physicians or physics as they were often known, were still woefully inadequate. They were still dealing in this old-fashioned mumbo-jumbo and superstition. They didn't really know what they were doing. And the cures that the doctors used on Charles was, was actually really more a form of torture, with bloodletting, with cupping, which is where you put these sort of... Uh, you heat these cups up until they're a vacuum and stick them on the, the flesh and try to create blisters blisters were seen as a way of the body sort of drawing poisons out. I mean, you know, in some areas, particularly in the area of wellness, we haven't really advanced a lot since then. This idea of sort of getting rid of toxins from the body, which the body does itself through the liver and the kidneys and various other organs. There's this idea that you can somehow draw it out of yourself through the soles of your feet or whatever. So, you know, there, there, there is still this idea of these sort of mysterious poisons within the body that only special doctors or expensive herbal treatments can deal with. But yes, Charles was pretty much tortured to death by his own doctors. He had a very miserable end, wasting away in great pain. And he called his brother James to his bedside at one point and famously said to him, let not poor Nelly starve. He was in many ways a decent fellow, unless you were his actual wife, in which case you probably thought he was a bit of a tosser. But yes, he dies at the age of 54 and his controversial younger brother, James, takes the throne. And one of the things I want to talk about with my guest today with Charles Spencer is a fact that a lot of people at the time and afterwards and even today say, well, you know, as a king, he wasn't that great. He didn't do a lot. He had an unsuccessful war with the Dutch. But, you know, he held the throne. He held things together through sort of avoiding conflict. And he also brought back a sense of fun, a sense of joie de vivre. That's a French term he would have brought over from from Paris but yeah but joy in life in living saying you know we're not put on this earth to suffer let's try and enjoy it while we're here and for me that is an achievement in itself but we'll go through all this in more detail with Charles Spencer after the break so be sure to come back then Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award winning seating they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too 
like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome back. And also, I'm delighted to welcome back Charles Spencer, who joined us, I mean, it seems like years ago now, to talk about Henry I. So it's great to have you back on, Charles. And, you know, we've covered so much ground since you were last with us. But it seems to me that not a lot has changed in the monarchy. Monarchs spend their time arguing with the lords, trying to produce legitimate children, trying to hold the country together, trying to stay on the throne. What was so intriguing about Charles II is that there must have been for a very long period a, a, a time when he thought he would never be king. So his father was executed in January of 1649. Charles comes to recover the Stuart throne, but it's all derailed at the Battle of Worcester and then he goes on the run, which is a really interesting uh, chapter in his life. And then he basically comes back by complete surprise in 1660. Because early in that year, Parliament had a vote and voted against the restoration of the monarchy. But things unraveled so fast in England after Cromwell's death that uh, monarchy seemed a good option and he comes back. And I see his reign against this background, really, that in many ways he viewed himself as a, a lottery winner. <laughs> because he could, he'd been living in poverty in Europe for nearly a decade. And suddenly he's king of England. And I think this really does uh, give colour to his reign, that, that, the aspect of him having been a fugitive for so long. Some of the historians over the years have accused him of not really being that interested in the, in the sort of business of ruling and being a king and they've accused him of being kind of lazy. I mean, do you think that's partly because he hadn't gone through all that sort of training and expectation of, of being in that position? I think so. I think as a young man, his father tried to uh, bring him into the English Civil War and um, gave him command of the southwest of England mm. as a teenager. And there was the defeat that all the royalists felt. But imagine if that was your family and then with his father being beheaded, it seemed very final. And then alliances coming to naught, really. The, first of all, the alliance with the Scots ended in heavy defeat at the Battle of Worcester. And then he becomes a rather embarrassing presence for, first of all, the French king, Louis XIV, his first cousin. And then he rots around in various parts of Europe, uh, including at one stage you know, in, in Cologne in Germany. He, he's living in an inn and unable to even meet his innkeeper's bills. So then he comes back and he must have thought, well, this is pretty good. <laughs> and, I, and I guess he was going to make the most of it. So he always had an incredibly active interest in insects and um this is from from an early age he was actually hopeless as a romantic uh challenger early in his life um there's a there's a, a terrible all of us who've been through boyhood adolescence <laughs> and had fumbling disasters will uh re this resonates with me anyway um he would set up with one of the great french princesses slightly older than him uh because his mother wanted him to make a, a rich match which might help dynastically the Stuarts get back into power and there's this moment where they're left together this sophisticated French princess and this rather 
tall and gawky English prince. And they talk about really nothing much. The princess writes in her diary that all he could talk about was horses and dogs, which is a sort of perennial <laughs> problem with the upper classes in England, really. <laughs> and um, then they, they are left there. And he, after a sort of stony silence where he really makes no effort at all and looks at his plate a lot, um, she goes away and says, I'm never, ever going to uh, look at that man seriously again. And actually, this is a woman, uh, she's called the Mademoiselle. She, she had a very high self-regard. She wrote in her diary. She just couldn't work out what was more beautiful about herself, uh, her ruby lips or her pearly teeth or whatever. So she had lots of confidence, but I think it was dented by the utter hopelessness of Charles's advances as a, as a young man. But then we know him, of course, as a, what I suppose that we now known as a, as a sort of serial shagger. And we know of about 52 mistresses who are officially his. And I think that lends credence to what you're saying. You know, he was more interested in his women than in governing. And it used to appall his counselors that he would cancel meetings for an afternoon with one of his mistresses in the bedroom. <laughs> and um, I, I think he enjoyed the, the, that rather more than the serious business of kingship. Well, you know, he must have thought, you know, what's the point of being king if you can't uh, capitalise on it a bit? I think he had a very traditional view of that side of kingship, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Everything belonged to him. Yes. But, yeah, I mean, I mean, talking about how his he, he's lack of um, conversational ability there, um, he does seem to have been quite famous for particularly boring people about his great escape. Oh, yes. And his time hiding in the oak tree. Yeah, that was his favourite story. If he was stuck with him, that's what he was going to whip out because he, he correctly identified his six weeks on the run um, after the Battle of Worcester as the high point of his life. It showed him at his best. So after the Battle of Worcester, he made a brilliant decision. So his, his army was made up of Scotsmen and they were fleeing north and pretty much every one of them was either captured or killed during this great flight. And Charles realized that he had to do something different. So he handed himself over effectively to a peasant yeoman family called Pendrel uh, in, in the sort of northwest of England. And they showed him how to disguise himself as a woodman, a sort of forester, really. And they smuggled him down the line. They happened to be Roman Catholics. They smuggled him down the line of various sympathetic Catholic families who had this wonderful attribute, which was the priest hole, um, a, a hiding place in their buildings where they had hidden uh, Catholic priests in previous generations. And so he was smuggled along, really, a sort of resistance line like that, and then to overt royalists, and all the time being pursued with a very large price on his head. And he would definitely have been put to death like his father if he was caught. He was very difficult to disguise, though, because not only was he six foot three at a time when people generally <laughs> really weren't, but also he walked in a rather um, entitled way. He rather, <laughs> I, I think, pranced rather than walked. And so he had to be coached into how to walk as a more humble man. So it, it, we could sort of picture him as a sort of John Cleese figure there, then? <laughs> yes, I, I think we can. He's a John Cleese figure. I hadn't thought of that. But also, quite a, I mean, like John Cleese himself, a clever man. And he managed to adapt from being really at the beginning of his six weeks on the run, uh, a, a rather ridiculous figure, into quite a sly um, and furtive fellow who could get by. And I, the example I'd give is that the, the very humble Pendrels who hit him to start with asked him uh, early on in his escape what he'd like to eat that night. And he said, oh, you know, nothing much, just some lamb. Well, this was a very... Uh, 
impoverished family and they'd only had meat at the after the baptism of their eldest child. It was not a, something they aspired to eat regularly. But very loyally, one of them snuck out and killed a lamb from a neighboring farmer and served <laughs> it up. And somehow, Charles took this on board. And later on in this escape, he's posing as a servant visiting a grand house. And the great house is having a banquet, and they're a bit short-staffed in the kitchen. So one of the household says to Charles, thinking he is a servant, you're going to have to come and help here. And the rather bossy, browbeaten cook says, look, go and work the spit. Well, the spit wasn't an obviously easy instrument to operate. And she spotted this suspicious inability of Charles to deal with the spit and said, what's going on? You know, call yourself a servant. You should be able to do that. And Charles says, well, I am a servant, but this is rather embarrassing. Uh, my master hasn't much money and we don't uh, eat meat. Yeah. And I think it's brilliant. He had, he had taken on board this embarrassing moment early on and turned it into a life-saving trump card when he needed to play it. So he, he was quite clever. Did he reward any of the people who had helped him later on? His gratitude was um, eternal. And the humble Pendrel family uh, were summoned as soon as he was crowned to uh, the court and were told that they were each going to get a pension in perpetuity. And I met a man called Mr. Pendrel uh, a couple of years ago who was rather miffed that it hadn't been index linked. The family still got £150 a year. Um, <laughs> but it was what an amazing thing to have carried down the centuries. And then Jane Lane, who's a, a, a very glamorous and um, loyal royalist who helped save his life for part of his escape. Uh, she was given lots of rewards. And a man called uh, Careless, he was a major Careless, sounds like a sort of Blackadder <laughs> figure. Um, he hid up in the oak tree with Charles and helped save his life. And when Charles became king, he made him change his name to Carlos because it was nearer to his own name as Charles and rewarded him very richly too. And um, no, essentially, he was a very generous, too generous a man. Um, he gave away an enormous amount of money. One of the least popular moments in his reign, and he did suffer from unpopularity because his reign was a bit of a shambles, I think, uh, was when in 1667, the Dutch sailed up the River Medway. Yes, I looked at that. That's, that's where they sank and captured part of the Royal Navy. And people, when they were looking at a reason for this, uh, they said part of the reason was that the Navy was underfunded because Charles had been buying so much jewellery for his mistresses. <laughs> and there was some truth in this. He, he was hemorrhaging money that, that came to him. He never had enough money. And I'm afraid it led him to, he was very close to Louis XIV, um, the, 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 the French king who was seen as a great threat by Protestant Europe, quite correctly. And Charles took a secret pension from him to support France and to um, help him get by, really. So money was a constant problem, as with all the Stuart kings, actually. But because of his extravagance, it, it was made to look worse. Yes. Now, that's something I didn't really get into earlier. But there was this incident, wasn't there, where he signed a treaty, the Treaty of Dover, I think, with King Louis, where in exchange for money, he secretly promised that he would convert to Catholicism and turn England Catholic again. I mean, do we know where Charles actually stood on religion? What, what did he believe in? Yes. Well, I, my view is that Charles was secretly Catholic for quite a time. Right. And there's this rather extraordinary uh, moment, again, harking back to his finest hour, this time on the run, 
one of the people who looks after him is a Catholic priest when he's at his most vulnerable, mm. called Father Huddleston. And we know that Charles read lots of Catholic texts while in hiding in Huddleston's house. And um, then towards the end of his reign, I mean, right at the end, he gets very seriously ill. And the royal physicians, a dozen of them are summoned to see if they can help him. He's obviously in a very grave state. And they subject him to terrible, ignorant um, medical procedures, mm. uh, uh, shaving his hair off and putting white hot glass against his scalp, supposedly to help, and, and, and poultices of pigeon droppings over his feet and making him drink, essentially, things that have been dug up in the farmyard, including <laughs> old bones, ground up into a sort of horrible um, potion. And, um, but while he's suffering like this, he, he, he tells his brother, James, who becomes James II, um, that he is, one of his mistresses says, you have to realize he is a Catholic and he wants to die a Catholic. And so this is a problem because the establishment at this time is so Protestant that Catholic priests aren't allowed to function in England at this time. And then someone says, well, there is actually, there is somebody to take his confession. Catholic priest, and it is Father Huddleston, mm. who had been pensioned off in a little house at the back of the court. And he's summoned and takes Charles Deccan's confession, which you can imagine probably took rather a lot of time, and <laughs> receives him officially into the Catholic Church in time for him to die as a Roman Catholic. But his sympathies, I think, had long lain with, uh, with the Roman Catholics, but he was savvy enough to know that that was unacceptable to a, an awful lot of his subjects. Yeah, I mean, he seemed to be very good at um, whoever he was talking to, whether they wanted him to be a Catholic or a Protestant, he could put on a good front as either. He was a good actor. Well, he had to be, I guess. I mean, his family hadn't had a lot of luck, had they? His great-grandmother, Mary Queen of Scots, had been beheaded. His father, Charles, had been beheaded. He had to set very carefully. He realised that if he, if he took a hard course, uh, things could go very wrong. So I think he was naturally lazy. He was a lover of the good things in life. But I wonder if there wasn't also an element of, I don't want to push things too hard because that way things go wrong. Yeah. I mean, you know, in retrospect, some of the monarchs, you think, well, they actually, they were a good monarch. It tends to be the ones that don't do very much. Don't get us embroiled in some stupid war or provoke the lords into rebellion. And I like the fact that Charles was more interested in science and technology, for instance, which is perhaps not a prerequisite for being a monarch. And it wasn't a superficial interest, was it? He was a, a leading light in the science uh, movement mm. of the day. You know, he, he was the founder of the Royal Society. He obviously you know, started the, uh, the Greenwich Observatory. And I love the, the detail. Uh, must have been very off-putting for the mistresses at the time, but he had 12 clocks in his bedroom because <laughs> he was fascinated by uh, the, the, their mechanics. And, you know, the combination of that and his unhouse-trained dogs who lived with him in his bedroom must have made for a very odd romantic setting, actually. Well, maybe he was just, you know, looking at ways to get, get rid of them once he'd... Uh... <laughs> he enjoyed himself. Oh, those clocks! I really must do something about them. Chiming all the bloody time. No, but I, I think you know, people just see him as the merry monarch. And by the end of his reign, people had got the people that, I mean, the general people of England had got used to him being like that. 
and uh, his nickname among many people was Old Roly, and Roly was his favourite royal stallion. And and in a way, there was a sort of affection for this aging by the by the standards of the time monarch who who'd lived a tough life before enjoying a very indolent one. And I think people were quite sort of proud of him, really, um, by the time that he had weathered a few storms politically. I mean, I, I, I think that the two main problems he had, one with foreign policy was dealing with the Dutch, because the Dutch and the English had two extremely fine fleets, and um, that, that meant that they were clashed. They had clashed before Charles II took the throne, but they clashed very... Uh, the, the, the Second and Third Anglo-Dutch Wars were really bloody affairs, which were important. Uh, for establishing dominance at sea and overseas. And, you know, the, the, the fact is that Charles didn't like the Dutch and he did like the French. And there was a sort of three-way fight in this corner of Europe, really, between the, 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 the French, the Dutch and the English. And I think that Charles was definitely at odds with the majority of his people by sympathising with the French against the Dutch, but also... I think uh, uh, the extreme Protestants in England found it very difficult to be at war against the Dutch because the Dutch religiously weren't that different mm. from the Puritan Presbyterians uh, who dominated a lot of Parliament. So he, he he was out on a limb because he he had spent time in the court of Louis the Fourteenth, emulated some of the court styles that he had learnt in France, and was a Francophile and. People really did see a shift to Catholicism as an ex existential threat. So Charles being perceived as a pro-Catholic was a problem. His brother James, Duke of York, being openly Catholic, uh, made him unacceptable to a huge proportion of the English, as was proven when he came to the throne. And you have to go back to Charles and James's mother, uh, Henrietta Maria, or Henrietta Maria, depending on how you pronounce it, but. She was a French princess who was very, very keen on, on turning England back to Catholicism. And in fact, she reluctantly agreed to marry Charles I, a Protestant. She really thought that was heretical. Um, on the basis, she wrote to the Pope, said, I'm only going to do this if I can actively help to bring England back mm. to Catholicism. So, yeah, I think that Charles was out of kilter with a lot of his people in terms of religion and in terms of grand politics. I suppose so that he must have had a lot of goodwill for the fact that he had put an end to extreme Puritanism. The English people tend to not really like extremes and they don't really like being told what to do. And most of us, I reckon, would lean towards the more fun and self-indulgent cavalier lifestyle than the rather austere, self-denying Puritan lifestyle that Cromwell had introduced. Yes, I think the flirtation with republicanism back then was, was, was the 11 years between Charles I's death and Charles II's restoration was a really testing time for a lot of just what, what we call ordinary English people who, who weren't overly religious and had to live by a code that got progressively more stern and austere. You know, the famous thing about banning Christmas, is, is, it, it's just one part of it. You know, um, the parliamentarians just closed down things that the English viewed as fun, things that we wouldn't view as fun today, um, such as uh, the bears that were kept for bear baiting. Well, of course, I don't think you'd get anyone who thought that's a good idea now, but they were all shot in captivity 
uh, as a, as a, a way of stopping that sport. It's obviously not a sport, but that pastime as it was seen at the time. And um, you get diaries. I mean, John Evelyn or John Evelyn, who was, uh, apart from Samuel Pepys, the most uh, important diarist at the time, he was a, a royalist, so he was going to hate it all. But he, writing about some of the really grim impositions, the, the Puritan way of overdoing it really is mm. not English and taking everything that seriously, the banning of everything on a Sunday apart from prayer and church and, uh, well, prayer really. And all of these uh, very extreme things, they didn't sit easily with the English people. And nobody really knew what to do after Cromwell died, did they? There was no proper plan, it seems, although, although I suppose a few people did try to put themselves forward, I guess. There's uh, a man called Lambert, very, very able parliamentary general, who raised a, a movement hoping that he could rise to the top. Um, but he was captured very near to where I'm sitting, actually, about five miles away in what is now the car park of Waitrose and Daventry. <laughs> uh, his horse stumbled in the mud there. And he was put into prison for the rest of his life. And, and, and essentially, Charles only came back, Charles II came back, not because anyone thought he was a great human being, because very few people knew anything about him, um, but because he was of royal blood, and that seemed worth another try. It seems that even Cromwell himself thought there should be one person in charge at the top. There was no sort of thought of, well, let's rule by government. This idea of the monarch or a monarch by another name seems to have been very ingrained in everybody's thoughts. Yes, I think so. I mean, that seems to be the case. Which really left a door open for Charles II. There's a very poignant moment during the, the trial of Charles I when his judges received a letter and it was just a blank piece of paper with Charles II's signature at the bottom. And what that was meaning was, I will agree to anything if you spare my father. Mm. And it was ignored, uh, even though other nations, uh, the United Provinces, which was the Dutch, they, they, they came forward and said, you cannot kill uh, Charles I. And the Scots were utterly furious because he was their king too. And they had essentially sold Charles I into captivity to uh, Parliament on the basis, on the guarantee that whatever happened to him, it wouldn't endanger his life. So Charles was heartbroken when his father was executed and nobody dared tell him. There's this story which seems to be true that the way he was notified, there was no no messenger brave enough to say your father's been executed. So um, one of the people serving him uh, bowed and called him your majesty. <laughs> and that was how, you know, he would have been your royal highness, but your majesty as king, he realized his father was dead. Uh, so he was bereft. And um, when he came back to the throne, England wanted a, a fresh start, uh, like the South Africans had with their Truth and Reconciliation mm. Commission. That there was no way you could make everyone pay back what had happened. It was we, we just had to have a fresh start. So essentially, everyone was forgiven, and the the crown and the church got their lands back. But any royalist who had lost their possessions had to take it on the chin. Uh, and Charles was in a very weak position about uh, bargaining what should be included in this the Declaration of Breda, uh, which was the agreement he had with Parliament as to how he would be king. But the one thing he left in there was that he must be allowed to hunt down and kill those men who had been involved in the trial and judgment and execution of his father. 
And that is, you know, when we when we think of Charles II as the merry monarch, uh, the way we've already discussed him, there was also a ruthless streak because for the entire 25 years of his reign, agents of the crown were hunting down the registrates, the, mm. the survivors of those who had put his father to death. So he, he did look for vengeance in a very serious way. Uh, and that's what you wrote about in your book, Killers of the King. That is, yeah, that is. And I, it was such an intriguing story because... You know, there are so many people involved in this, and um, there are two who got to America. Robert Harris has written a novel yeah. based on the act of oblivion, and, and, and essentially you end up with two living, two of these very great parliamentary generals, they're a father-in-law and a son-in-law of each other called Gough and Whaley, and they live together behind somebody's chimney piece in Hadley, Massachusetts for many years. I mean, what a grim... <laughs> way to live, but it's probably preferable to being hanged, drawn, and quartered, which is what Charles II was subjecting people to back in London. And he went on seeking vengeance long after people in England wanted to get on with it. Mm. So, for instance, he he was uh, having people hanged, drawn, and quartered, which is a particularly unpleasant way to go, and I'm sure your, your yes. listeners don't want mm. to know what it is, but it's bad news <laughs> with burning of entrails such, while you're alive. Um, but the smell was so bad where the people got fed up with the, the the smell of burning entrails, etc., um, that they said, "Look, please stop this. You know, we don't want this." And, they, and and there was pity for these quite old men about that stage being dragged through the streets to a grisly execution. But Charles kept going because he saw it as a family thing as well as a a royal thing. Was there a sense of you know these will represent? Everybody that turned against me, but these are the only ones that I'll kill and the rest of you. Yeah, there was a scapegoat element. And and at first people were thrilled by that because, I mean, nobody is more fearful about the regicides being put to death than the other parliamentarians because it got them off the hook. Mm. Um, but there, there comes a point, I mean, you've, you've, you've talked about English national character before, and I, I don't think we're a very vengeful race, and I'm not sure we ever have really been. And it's fine to have... You know, early early prisoners who were guilty of this mm. extraordinary crime of killing a king put to death. But to keep going year after year to find fresh people to put to death like this was was very unpopular uh, within a few years. He did manage to hold on to the throne though for the whole of his reign, which wasn't a given at all. Uh, he had these powerful groups in Parliament, these cabals, but he was still the monarch. He was still in charge, although he had to accept that he was not an absolute monarch like Louis XIV. After Charles came back, he was slightly hamstrung. He had had to hand over some powers. But it was still based on a, a almost a medieval view of monarchy. Um, although, you know, people made their views heard. I mean, the, the exclusion crisis was basically trying to sideline the possibility of Charles II's younger brother, James, Duke of York, becoming king because of his Catholicism. That was incredibly controversial, but but showed a, a, a sort of willingness for people in Parliament to take on the crown and insist on almost the, the right of the people to be protected in a way. So um, the Privy Council became more of a thing. But not so much that they completely undermined Charles's authority. He was still powerful enough individually for it to be in people's interest to uh, get to him personally. So, for instance, Louis the Fourteenth knew Charles II's uh, penchant for female enjoyment, 
and packaged um, a, a woman called uh, Louise de Carouet, a, a beautiful French lady, and she was sent over to the court. Louis knew that Charles would make her his mistress, which he duly did, and she was effectively a spy and an influencer on behalf of Louis the Fourteenth and France. And she did, she did have real influence because even after the English civil wars were lost by the crown and the crown was restored with its wings clipped, Charles II still had enough power as king to uh, affect policy directly. And it wasn't until Queen Anne and at the end of the Stuart Kings um, what, in 1688 when essentially a new constitution, it's not actually that, but a new constitution was agreed so Charles II really is in the dying light of what we would consider a more a more medieval structure of kingship. Just to wrap up, yes. Charles was one of those monarchs who managed to die without a legitimate heir, but he had managed to he had managed to produce an extraordinary number of illegitimate heirs who he who he ennobled and. Uh, it seemed to treat very well. I mean, was that partly a sort of snub of the whole Puritan ethic? So the bride that was chosen for him, really, for dynastic reasons, was a Portuguese princess, Catherine of Braganza. And it seems very likely that she was unable to have children. Uh, she was very religious, very charming and devout lady. Um, but she lived a, a parallel life to Charles's hedonism, really. Mm. And he is credited with a dozen illegitimate children, which is, I have to say, only half the total of the king you had me on for last time, Henry I, <laughs> who had two dozen. And, um, but he, he was a very generous man, Charles, and he didn't want his uh, illegitimate offspring to be just, you know, um, an embarrassing uh, result of an affair. So most of them ended up as dukes or earls or the equivalent as, as female. And um, he he loved them. Uh, the most probably the one who he loved most was Duke of Monmouth, who tried to become king, and, and of course it ended in disaster for him. Um, was he snubbing people? I actually think uh, it looks like one or two of the children might not have been his, um, because the math doesn't work out. The nine month math period doesn't work out. In fact, for the Duke of Monmouth, I, he, he it looks like he was a uh, one of the, a, a child of one of the Sydney uh, men who were quite prominent at this time. But Charles was generous. And in fact, the great Duke of Marlborough, as a young man, he, he caught Marlborough in bed or in the bedroom of Barbara Castlemaine, his most um, promiscuous mistress. And he could have really caused problems for this. He was John Churchill. He was the um, ancestor of Winston Churchill. He could have really destroyed him. But Charles II, catching this young, very handsome army officer with his principal mistress, uh, sort of said, oh, I, I don't forgive you. I know you're doing this for your bread. He knew that uh, Churchill was being was getting a pension from this mistress, which he probably needed. And that's, I mean, if you think about it, that really is the opposite of a crime of passion, really. I think he was <laughs> uh, quite relaxed about morality when it came to the bedroom and was delighted to be surrounded by a, a dozen young people who could be his, he could view as his children. Well, excellent. Now, now, I can't leave this without mentioning the Spencer family is, is descended from one of Charles's illegitimate children. Yes, we're from two of his mistresses. So, right. I mean, there's a, yeah, I, I have to say in that he had 12 illegitimate children, probably half your listeners are related to Charles II. <laughs> 
<laughs> but we we have direct. Uh, so yes, Louise de Caraway, the French lady I mentioned, and Barbara yes. Castlemaine, the other one I mentioned. Oh wow! Um, my family's descended from um, Charles II illegitimately twice over. And this is extraordinary. You know, when I tell Americans this, when they come around the house, I'm showing portraits or whatever. They look at the floor full of embarrassment for my family. But of course, <laughs> I, I think it's rather lovely. You know, he's a very interesting king, a rather flawed person, but a very real one. Some, you know, of all your kings your, and queens you're looking at, I think the one you'd enjoy having a pint with most would be Charles mm. II. And that's not a bad thing to, to be remembered for. And yes, he had a you know really bad run of luck. You know, three years in a row where you've got the Great Vague, the Fire of London, and the yeah. Dutch destroying our navy. It's not making for a, a particularly illustrious um, reign, but I think he was a thoroughly decent man generally. Um, although you know his trade, the things he did with trade were uh, are obviously appalling uh, in terms of investing in slavery, etc. Yeah, and that should be mentioned that uh, to us. Um, and to many generations for us, totally repugnant thing to have done. Uh, and um, but apart from that, I think he he had a pretty good reign. Well, thank you so much, Charles, for coming on again. No, I'm delighted. Sharing yeah, some great. some some proper historical knowledge. <laughs> the silly bits. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks very much. Cheers. So that was Charles Spencer, who's written many books on this period of history, including Killers of the King. The Men Who Dared to Execute Charles, To Catch a King, Charles II's Great Escape, and Prince Rupert, The Last Cavalier. And if you want to find out more about his own fascinating family history, he's written a book about it called The Spencer Family. As Charles pointed out, we're probably all of us in England descended from somebody in the royal family, but Charles has much closer royal connections that, that most of the rest of us can ever hope to achieve. So please join me next week where we take up the story of Charles II's younger brother, James, and I will try to explain how it was we came to be ruled by a Dutch king. Follow the podcast now to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Higson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Higson, 2024.